You ready? Yes. <clears throat> Case, one day at Nanquan's, the eastern and western halls were arguing over a cat. When Nanquan saw this, he took and held it up and said, If you can speak, I won't cut it. The group had no reply. Nanquan then cut the cat in two. Nanquan also brought up the foregoing incident to Zhao Zhu and asked him. Zhao Zhu immediately took off his sandals, put them on his head, and left. Nanquan said, If you had been here, you could have saved the cat. Well, let's share what we did. This is for the, the classic comic book. <laughs> there was, when you cut um, um, brocade, what, what's that fabric called, the real thick silk? Nelda, not The one I used? No, but just when you have really thick, is it brocade or something else? Well, brocade is a thick fabric, it is. Yeah. So anyway, when you do that, you're supposed to use pinky sh pinking shears. So I decided that the cat would be cut like that. You're learning a lot in with sewing, Kim. Did you know about pinking shears before? Oh, I did. Yeah, okay. I've done a lot of stuff with scissors, a lot of collages, different things. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, uh, what about so anyway uh one one um word that hit me this time was <coughs> the men were angry and then there was speak you know the so the, it's a difference of being angry or 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 talking loudly and speaking and there's a big deal in the in the torah where uh moses is told to speak to the rock and instead he hits the rock so so there's kind of a violence there with the arguing and also the east and west there was there's this koan that we'll read later about um did bodhidharma come from the west but you know some people describe the east and the west as different as different um dormitories mm -hmm. but uh but there could be a reference to that to where did Bodhidharma come from? I, I don't know if, if there's more to the East and West, but I, I do like the idea that, that um, of speaking up. You know, you do that a lot, Nelda, well, I'm, I'm in, your, in your life. You, you know that in every system, there is a clanging gong. If you look at a, if you look at family systems or social systems, they are like a baby mobile over a crib, and where it is out of balance because people don't speak up, you add a balancing weight, and there's always someone in PTA, school boards, you know, uh, Congress, families, who is that person who speaks what other people refuse to and stay silent about. And I just took on that role from a very young age. You're so that's really interesting. So what we're doing, um, 
we're studying right use of power in our council and and and, and, um, and then also the idea of repair so some of speaking up is like dividing but there's a speaking up where you try to to mend and repair relationships you know like you talked about how what you did with your son that was speaking up but it was done in a for it didn't have that it didn't rupture it yeah did, it didn't rupture. Yeah. i mean that's really beautiful when that happens mm -hmm. when you and, can speak up to to create community as opposed to divide it right and so kim you emily do you mind if i go next no go ahead yeah. okay so you mentioned anger and you associated you said that these these monks were angry and it's so funny because i never got that sense from this well, wait, 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 wait. should i share it the word share the koan it doesn't say angry there's no anger anywhere will you bite your tongue if there is yes <laughs> oh i will i i read arguing as anger that's my point okay go I, on i i'm I wrong Okay. I don't see arguing as anger. I'm a lawyer, so we argue all the time. Just <laughs> debate teams argue all the time. So it doesn't necessarily include anger. However, I do think that that is the key word to this whole koan. And I may be wrong. I'm wrong a lot. And so I immediately, what immediately came up for me with that one word was the Xinxin Ming. And so I went, I'm in the Zendo, I went and got, and so I want to read what came up for me because it really, really, they could have been debating, arguing over a roach, a cat, a, a, you know, a, 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 as we have in Buddhist action now, a white person versus a black person. That's really not the point. The point is that they were arguing and so from the Xin Xin Ming, when you cling to, hair, to a hair's breadth of distinction, heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. And I'll skip down to the next thing. As vast as infinite space, it is perfect and lacks nothing. I'm going to pause there because a cat dead or alive is perfect. A cosmos in which a cat is dead or alive is still perfect and lacks nothing. Nothing was lost with the death of the cat. Nothing was necessarily gained with the with the keeping the cat alive is how I look at it. The focal point is this split that happens when you are arguing and pressing your point as if there is such a thing as right and wrong. So when you cling to a hair's breadth of distinction, um, if you are for or against arguing right and wrong, and then don't keep searching for the truth, just let go of your opinions. And then I, this part reminds me of the cat, because if you want to describe that cat's essence, whether it's alive or it's dead, is the best you could say is not to. It's death or life is really not relevant. Because it's still not two in death and it's still not two in life. And then one is all, all are one. 
When you realize this, what reason for holiness or wisdom? And I will add to that for being right or wrong. And I and I'll I'll finish with these notes. What they were arguing over is really irrelevant. What is relevant is that they were arguing. And and beyond that, they froze and didn't take action within their vow to save the cat or to get back to their practice. And they were so afraid or shocked by their teacher's um, words that they forgot their vow, they forgot their true selves. So whether the cat's alive or dead is really not the issue. The significance is that they were arguing and they set a distinction, right, wrong, hair's breadth or, or worlds apart. Yes. So, last week you left before we read this. Oh, I did. The, the koan, yes. That's right, I did. Yeah. And I made up a story that Nelda didn't want the cat to be hurt, so she was leaving. No. <laughs> but no. You, you, you probably your dogs wanted to go out or something. No, I I had agreed to meet with someone right on the dot. I see. Yeah, my friend with cancer, I had agreed to call her right oh, on. Oh, isn't that it's funny the stories we make up. No, but I don't want the cat to be hurt. But anyway, but but Yeah, so you think this arguing is not that they weren't angry, their faces weren't red. They I don't know. I, I'm just saying that when I heard you say anger, I'm like, wait. Arguing doesn't necessarily include anger. They may have been angry in arguing. They may have not been angry. They may have been very philosophical, like in Socratic times and arguing points. It doesn't, the anger's really not the relevant part. It's the setting the distinction. Well, in terms of speaking, what, what, how do you read that? What, what, was it speaking Zen or was it speaking and explaining why they were arguing? Ask it differently because I think this is similar to does a dog have Buddha nature? And they were debating that back and forth. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. And so it it doesn't, it doesn't, right? And whether it's alive or dead, it's still Buddha nature. Well, Every, mm. What could have been said that like when your teacher says to speak, you can't just say anything. You you can't start you did say something of consequence. I already told you what I would say, Kim. I would say moo. Say, oh, yes, last M -U, week. Moo. Yeah. That would be my word, moo. Or M O O. Okay. No, but M M U because it's yeah, a specific meaning. Okay, Emily. Um. I uh, feel like I went to class, Nelda. Thank you. It was uh, very enlightening. Sorry. No, no, like I don't say that in a bad. I love learning, so I really enjoyed your um, your um, Dharma talk. Yeah. Uh, no, no. I just I enjoyed what you just said. I thought it was uh, illuminating. So thank you. Um. Uh, I am I'm fresh off a poetry reading. I didn't read a poem, but a, a person I know 
named Cuppy Cakes, she wrote a poem in a series of poems in San Antonio. And um, I thought of her. So I wrote, I wrote a sort of a, a little bit about her. I said, um, the trees speak to the wind with creaks and sighs and breaks. Uh, the poet's sister speaks her written words to her sister standing in the audience. And the sister's eyes flood out in tears and speak sadness to her daughter, who looks up and speaks to her mother in a smile more radiant than a thousand stars. Her tiny tongue speaks up, don't cry. The words embrace the mother, the sister to the poet, who shakes her head and wipes away her flood, that speaks to the clench in her chests, that speaks to the triumph of words, that the sister poet speaks to an audience, wrapped at her survival and at her transcendence. Wow. Emily, that's stunning. There's no other word for it but stunning. And oh my gosh. Yeah. No words. I have no words. That was brilliant. Mm. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of uh, interesting mm -hmm. ways of looking at this. And I have a question, and maybe you all have one or several answers. Kim knows this better than I. I know that in in Jewish practice at one time, when people were mourning, they would rend their clothes and put ashes on their head. Is that the significance of Shaoshu putting his sandals on his head? Well, I've I've been told it's a, it's an express it was an expression at that time of grief. Hmm. So you know, like before I knew that, I always took it just as like an arbitrary gesture without words. But it's not that at all. It was a very specific thing. So, so adding, and that's something the people would have known at the time of the koan. So knowing that. Um, <coughs> he he was saying something like "poor cat." I wondered if that's what he was saying, or something even broader, Kim. Not only "poor cat," but "poor monks," "poor teacher," "poor life." That we are we here we are in this practice, completely missing the point, making a hair's breadth of distinction that just takes you completely off the path. I just wondered how, if that was a symbol of mourning, how deep, what the depth and breadth of the mourning was. Hmm. I, I don't know. It's possible, yeah. And, um, if we were there, and we saw someone doing that and we saw their expression, we, we could read it better. Oh, you know, uh, I just looked, I Googled it. And yes. Uh, yes, it's a sign of mourning in ancient China. Thank you. Yeah. Mm. Well, I have um, Norman Fisher 
on this thing that we read last time, but on this. So should we go to that? Yes, sure. I do think they would have kicked me out of the monastery because I probably would have hit my teacher and grabbed the cat. <laughs> yeah. Knocked him down or her down and grabbed the cat. <laughs> well, here it is. Okay, Lion's Roar. Why don't I see it in my uh, things to share? Just a second. Oh, here it is. Do you see it? Yes, quick, yeah. who can save the cat, yes. Okay, good. And let me make it, the text bigger. Oh, look, I, I didn't, uh, do you see the cat? Yeah, but it's still in one piece. And then he has the knife. Yes. So I got that right. And I don't, there's two people here, but I don't see any sandals. Well, because the, the sandals were later. Those, I read some. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, and some places that second part is another koan. Isn't that what Joel said? Uh, yeah. Sunday. So there's two koans. Sometimes it's bro broken up into two koans. Um, in in the uh, Blue Cliff Records, I think. <laughs> That's funny. The cat. Okay. It, it it looks more like done in the 1950s the cat itself you know than a, than a long time ago i don't know who this person is okay <laughs> the case who'd like to read you want to do alphabetical okay emily okay nanshan saw the monks of the eastern and western halls fighting over a cat seizing the cat he told the monks if any of you can say a word of Zen, you will save the cat. No one answered. Nantran cut the cat in two. Wait, 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 let's stop a second. This is how I've always read it. If any of you can say a word of Zen, as opposed to if any of you can speak. So that's what he was de demanding. Okay, but go on. Oh, yeah. Uh, Nanchuan cut the cat in two. That evening, Zhao Zhou returned to the monastery and Nanchuan told him what had happened. Zhao Zhou removed his sandals, placed them on his head, and walked out. Nanchuan said, If you had been there, you would have saved the cat. Mm. Muman's comment. And remember, Muman is the one that. Um, assembled. He was one of the people who assembled the koans. 
Uh, so why did uh, Zhao Zhou put his sandals on his head? If you can answer this question, you will understand exactly that Nanshan's action was not in vain. If not, danger. What do you guys make of that? I, I don't know. I mean, it seems too simple to know that it was an expression of grief. This is this. I, I think this is address addresses my question of what was being grieved. Was it the loss of the cat? Was no. That's a great question. Was it missing the mark completely? Here are these monks who completely missed the mark. I mean, so. I love that. So. So so then that would make. Uh, that's great. That's okay. That makes sense to you, Emily. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because otherwise, the question's too easy. Yeah. You know, if it's simply oh, an expression of of grief because the cat died, mm -hmm. and, and that's not really the tragedy. No, right. That's not really the tragedy. Okay, Mumon's poem. Are you going to read that, Kim? Had Zhao Zhou been there, he would have taken charge. Zhao Zhou snatches the sword, and Nam Chan begs for his life. Mm -hmm. So that's another, uh, <coughs> in the timeline, that's another event, right? Yeah. Now Zhao Zhou is really speaking because he's, He's telling Nanchan, you did the wrong thing. I mean, that's how I'm reading it. Okay, Nelda, you would like to read? Yes. This story involves Nanchuan, Japanese Nansen, and Xiaoshou, uh, two of the most important figures in Zen history. Xiaoshou came to Nanchuan when he was only about 20 years old. Nanchuan was lying down, taking a nap when the young man approached. Sitting up in his bed, he asked a Zen question, a wonderful question for anyone at any time. Where have you come from? Xiao Zhou replied, I come from the standing Buddha temple. Are there any standing Buddhas there? asked Nanchuan. Xiao Zhou replied, here I see a reclining Buddha. Xiaoshou was a sincere steady practitioner devoted to his teacher, with whom he remained for 40 years. They were very close, as this story shows, and they worked together to create a good learning environment for the monks. So this idea of <coughs> we're all Buddhas seems to be expressed here in this, I, right? That he's looking down at mm -hmm. uh, Nan Chan and he's saying, I, I see a reclining Buddha. Mm -hmm. Which is why he took him in as a student, I imagine, because he got it. We all have Buddha nature. We all. 
And and so I love the end because it sort of warmed my heart, as Joan said on Sunday, that last sentence of this paragraph. Um, they were very close, as this story shows, and they worked to create, they worked together to create a good learning environment for their monks. And it just reminded me of Apamata and Peg and Flint and how they balance each other and how they they dance well as teachers together. Yeah. So there's this teacher, uh, Robert Thomas, who came to the Austin Zen Center for a couple of years to kind of clean things up after that things were messy. Mm -hmm. And, um, but he told this story about how Norman Fisher was his teacher, but he didn't have a teacher for a long time. <coughs> And finally, he went to Norman Fisher and said, would you be my teacher? And Norman Fisher said, no, but I'll be your friend. So, so you know, you picked up on that, Nelda, that um, working together as opposed to one being over the other. Uh, who's reading now? <coughs> Um, both Nan Xuan and Zhao Zhou figure in many stories in the Koan collections. The present case is probably the best known and most disturbing case in all of Zen. We could compare it to a similar story that appears in the Bible involving the wise kin Solomon and the baby. As the tale goes, two women are arguing over a baby, both claiming to be the mother. Like Nan Xuan, Solomon proposes to solve the dispute by cutting the baby in two. He intends to give half to each of the women, an eminently fair solution. One of the women speaks up immediately and says, no, don't do it. I am not the mother, give the child to her. And so Solomon discovers that she is the real mother, the one who cares most for the child's welfare. So what if one of the monks arguing one way or another when whoever it was, Nanchuan, um, whoever said, I'll cut the cat, had said, no, don't cut the cat. Their side is right. They're right. It doesn't have Buddha nature or, you know, they're right. It does. Um, to me, that would have shown so much more about their practice than just being in such shock and in such a power down position that they felt like they couldn't say anything to their teacher and they completely forgot their practice when it was needed most. And that I think is part of the mourning process too. How sad, how sad to forget your practice when you need it most to save a life, whether it's a cat or a human or your own. Anyway. Yeah, I like that. I like that. That's for true, I think. Yeah. Okay, who, who should read next? You. You. The Solomon story is tidier and nicer than the story of Nanchan and the cat. We can easily discern its point, whereas Zen stories seem harder to appreciate. People get confused when you say to them, say a word of Zen. They can't help but think there is something to this that they don't understand. It paralyzes them. They can't say anything. They think about it in a panic. And the more they think, the more baffled they become. 
A Zen monk is not half as smart as a mother. A mother knows about law, love and devotions, so she is never speechless when it comes to the welfare of her children. If the mother in the Solomon story had been there, she would have said to Namshan, what's the matter with you? How could you even think of killing the cat? You are a Zen priest who has taken a precept against killing. Surely these words would have saved the cat. If the monks had been reasonable, ordinary, feeling humans, beings instead of stupid monks, the Zen gold dust in their eyes with stupid monks with Zen gold dust in their eyes. I like that. They would have spoken up like that or simply grabbed the cat and run, ran away. But they couldn't do that. Maybe they were too intimidated by the prestige of their teacher. There you go. I don't know about that. <laughs> hmm? I what? think they were just shocked. They were like, oh no, something's going to die. Quick. Ah, it's too late. And you, we've all felt that, right? Where, oh my gosh, if I say the wrong word, it's going to die. So, so we freeze. Yeah. 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 Been there, yeah. All right. In commenting on the case, Dogen said, if I were Nanshuan, I would have said, if you cannot say a true word of Zen, I will cut the cat. And if you say a true word of Zen, I will also cut the cat. This would have been a much less misleading challenge than the one posed by Nanchuan. If I were one of the monks, I would have said, we can't answer. Please, master, cut the cat in two if you can. Or, Nanchuan, you know how to cut the cat in two, but can you show us how to cut the cat in one? <laughs> ah. And again, Dogen says, if I were Nanchuan and the monks could not answer, I would say, too bad, you cannot answer. And then I would release the cat. Wait, there's something important here, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Yes, oh, lots of, lots. This is, there's a lot to unpack in this one paragraph. You know, this idea, like Peg's uh, book, I don't know if you saw it. Emily, are you on the Appamata mailing list? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And Peg just sent out her the first yeah. third of her book, yeah. and it's called Not Two. And this mm -hmm. idea of um, of dualism and separating things in two is is... is part of this and how can you cut a cat in one you know and what's the sound of of one hand i just was just hearing something about this and it's the koan is really what's the sound of one hand not one hand clapping but but anyway and emily your poem just really came to mind and touched me with the last sentence of this, too bad you cannot answer, then I would release the cat. Because there's so many different ways of speaking and that, that words cannot hold, right? That words aren't enough for. Yeah. And releasing the cat would have said so much. 
Yeah, it would have been less misleading. Okay, I my turn. Sure. We are all cut in two, of course. That's living in this world of discrimination and difference. I am me, therefore I'm not you, but we are also cut in one. Only we don't know it. Being cut in one is I am me and all is included in that, you and everything else. We practice zazen to remember that we are cut in one as well as two. And the other way it's said is not one, not two. When we are dead, we'll all be cut in one and only one. But we are dying all the time. <coughs> if we are Zen monks, we devote ourselves to sitting on our cushions so that we can see this and integrate it into everyday living. When Zhao comes back later and puts his sandals on his head, this is what he's saying. Putting a sandal on the head was a sign of mourning in ancient China. Zhao Zhou is expressing, fool, do not, teacher, do not fool me with your pantomime. You and I both know that the cat is already dead. You and I are already dead. All disputes are already settled. All things are beyond coming and going, vast and wide, at peace. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you guys take that? It's really very beautiful. It is beautiful. And if you follow a number of different theories, the simplest to express is Einstein's theory. There's no time. There's no past, present, and future. All energy, all that is, was, and will be. There's no time is a construct. Is is already here. It it's all present. So, why would this distinction of a live cat or a dead cat really matter? Let's just let go of that. Let's let go of right and wrong. It's all unfolding at the same time. All of it. Okay, um, Nelda. Oh. This same story appears in two other major koan collections, the Blue Cliff Records and the Book of Serenity. And the commentaries there say that Nan Chuan did not cut the cat in two, but only pan, uh, pantomime doing it. Zen teachers do not commit murder, the commentaries say, even to make an important point. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in Zen precept study, it is always noted that there are three levels of precept practice, the, the literal, the compassionate, and the ultimate. On the literal level, we follow the precepts according to their explicit meanings. Not to kill means not to kill, not even a bug. But on the compassion level, we recognize the complexity of living. Sometimes not to kill one thing is to kill something else. The network of causality is endlessly complex. Our human ideas cannot encompass it. We recognize that precepts will be broken sometimes, and we affirm that our guide for precept practice will not, liter will not be literality, 
but compassion. We will follow precepts with a heart of love for beings. That motivation may sometimes cause us to break precepts in order to help someone. That's beautiful. It is beautiful. Should I send that to Joel? Oh, I think, yeah. I think so. Joel is teaching the precept class, Emily. Yes, hmm. that's lovely. How about the next paragraph too, Kim? Because it talks about those two levels, but the third level is that next paragraph. I wish Melen could be here. Yeah. Okay, who's to read this last, this second paragraph? Me? Mm -hmm. On the third level of precept study, the ultimate level, <coughs> we recognize there is no breaking precepts. Precepts are neither be broken nor kept, for they, like all that is, are empty of any identifiable self. When we understand this deep truth, we naturally want to follow precepts with a wide, flexible heart. <clears throat> this case involves the ultimate level of precept practice, the recognition that there is no killing, that life can never be killed, or to put it another way, that life is already dead. When we know life at this level, we can really appreciate its preciousness. It is this recognition that <coughs> Nan Chan and Zhao Zhou have but that the monks lack. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that paragraph's as clear as I would like it articulated, but I, I, I mean, it resonates with me. So there's no life, there's no death. Those are just, again, constructs. There's no past, present, future. None, none of these contracts constructs actually exist except to be helpful to us in the conventional world but not not on the level that that we are practicing zen and uh, on which the precepts function so that's the key i think you know you're what you said the, the conventional world mm -hmm. so there's the relative and the absolute in one world these things are very real and we cry you know, and, and mourn and tear our clothes off and all those things. If we just do the one, we're way off, whatever, either one. Yes. Who's next? I think it's you. Yeah. Oh. Okay. This is not just Zen talk. It's really true. We think death is later, but death is not later. It's now. 
as each moment passes irrevocably. No wonder we can't see this. It's too terrifying. Our death doesn't happen all of a sudden. It happens gradually and always. But it is also true that our death never comes. When we enter what is conventionally called death, the I we have always thought we were melts away. But the I we always actually were and always will be as ever. Well, oh, I'm sorry. Let me read that again. The I we have always thought we were melts away, but the I we always actually were and always will remain as ever unmoving. All this, although this may sound paradoxical, it's a plain truth, probably the most basic of all human truths. We are always dying and there is no such thing as death. Seen in this light, the precepts are ultimately not simply rules of ethical contact, uh, conduct, a list of do do's and don'ts. They are possibilities for us to understand life's profundity through our conduct in the ordinary world. Practice of the precepts takes us to the root of what it means to be alive, to the center of the human problem of meaning. We are always faced with the questions whose depth we will never be able to fathom. What do I do with this life now? This is precepts practice. The, um, the word that stood out to me in this paragraph was possibilities. Mm. Um, I think why I come back to this group week after week is because this group helps me understand the possibilities that the before I attended this group, I think I had been cutting myself off from possibilities. And it's a it's been of great comfort and relief to come back into contact with that. For me, it's the possibilities are um, seeing th things as others see them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, rather than uh, just what our conditioning is has uh, taught us, shaped us. But he's talking, maybe it's a little, even a little different. It's depth rather than breath. It's what? Depth. Rather than breath, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, we should uh, back up a little bit though. The monks in the East and West Hall were arguing about a cat. In most monasteries in ancient China, the community was divided. Some monks lived in the meditation hall, devoting full time to formal practice, while others were working monks who did the necessary support work for the monastery, cooking, farming, fixing, chopping firewood, and so on. These two kinds of monks were probably housed in different halls, the East and the West Hall. Hmm. Hmm. That actually explains a lot, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jim? 
As soon as there were two halls and two functions, there were different viewpoints, and inevitably there were disputes. Oh, I want to tell you a story over which viewpoint is correct. Um, there's a there's a, a photographer that I really liked in Philadelphia. I don't I don't I never met him, but um, I followed his work for a long time. And he taught in a school where there was another photographer and the guy I liked was very experimental and the other guy was very straight. And their students would actually have fights, physical fights in the hallways of the school because there was so much antagonism between the two groups. And there's a debate in art schools and probably in other departments too, whether it's best to have teachers who are all have the same focus or whether to have a diverse, you know, diverse teachers. We certainly had very, in all the schools I went to, they were very diverse. And it's interesting, you know, and some not respected at all because of what they did mm. by the others. Sounds like neighborhood gangs. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, I grew up in a, I grew up in a, well, in a city, Laredo on the border where every neighborhood had it was, had its own gang. And just, you know, you just had to fight the other gang because they were what? Wrong. Outside of the street. <laughs> it had nothing to do with right or wrong. It's just, you know, we're here we are and don't you cross the street and you did and you broke a rule who made up these rules right these are the silliest rules anyway thanks yeah yeah go ahead Ken. i digressed okay in our zen center exactly there used to be this used to happen all the time and it probably still does the monks who specialize at work think the monks who meditate a lot are indulging their taste for peace and quiet and are unrealistic about the world. Meanwhile, the meditators think the workers are too worldly and not really interested in doing the practice. This clash of perspectives happens in all monasteries and there is sometimes great strife. The Catholics had conflicts between the choir monks and the lay brothers that went on for centuries until Vatican II, a sweeping program of reform instituted in the 1960s, abolished the tradition of lay brothers. Is it me? Uh, yeah. The same thing happens, of course, and much more tragically in the world at large. Jews, to take one drastic example among many, think Israel is their place and that their customs and traditions should prevail there, while Palestinians think it is their place and therefore their customs and traditions should prevail. Neither side considers its view to be merely a preference, an option among options. It is the truth. Nanquan's monastery, maybe the working monks thought the cat would do very well in the kitchen as a mouser. The meditating monks, whose minds were very subtle, tender, and compassionate, could not bear the thought of a cat killing mice. This was, after all, murder. So the monks fought over the cat. When there's a difference and the underlying essence of difference, which is oneness, 
is not appreciated, understood and appreciated, there will always be fighting. None of us is free from being blinded by our own views. So how do you handle this kind of situation? Which side are you on? What do you do? Nanquan demonstrates. Oh, I'm just reading ahead. This is interesting. Oh. Well, in Zen, in Zen, a knife always suggests Manjushri's sword of wisdom that slices through emptiness, cuts through duality. It sees that life and death are intertwined. Good and bad are intertwined. Israelis and Palestinians depend on each other. Manjushri's sword cuts through attachment to view, showing that all views depend on each other and arise from an underlying unity that is no view. The truth is beyond views. It is just life as it really is, unexplainable. So Dan Schramm uses Manjushri's sword in a little piece of street theater designed to take the monk's dispute to another level. Never mind the cat, he is saying, what is life? What is death? Why are we alive? You monks and all we humans are arguing over a cat while the world is burning up in front of our eyes. Wake up, don't waste time. The problems of the world are actually fairly easy to solve. But people can't get along, can't work together, can't harmonize their views, so nothing gets done. Things only get worse. Technical and social solutions are at hand, but political problems block their, them at every turn. That's the worst problem in the world. Mm. I think this case strikes to the heart of what it means to be a monk in the world which is our challenge as Dharma students, to be fully committed to our practice, to make it the only thing in our lives, and yet to honor our daily activity in the world as the expression of our practice. How do we do that? We are all monks of the East Hall and of the West Hall. We are all activists and quietists. How do we manage this? Thomas Merton wrote about the special function of the monk for the world. The monk, he felt, lives life radically in holiness, apart from the world. Monks are unusual people. They are and must be outsiders. This means they are not on any one side. They are committed to truth, which means love, so they can't be attached to one side or another. Monks can't hate. They can't justify their views as right. They must always come back to the center, to zero, to the present moment, the in-between moment, beyond views. So although monks may live harmoniously in the midst of society, they are always subversives, working internally and externally against the dominant modes of greed, hate, and delusion. <coughs> that make the world go round. Monks are living examples of an alternative to the self-centered ways of the world. They are secret agents of a foreign power, the power of selfless love. 
Not that they have a superior attitude about this. In fact, the most important practice for a monk is humility, which is the practice of being aware of the selfishness that arises in our mind continually while remaining clearly committed to the effort to go beyond selfishness and to encourage others to do the same. Does it mean now? Mm -hmm. Yes. I know a Christian hermit whose lifetime has been devoted to the study of the writings of um, Simone. How do I say that? Wow. Again, Emily? Wow. Wow. Simone, but wow. Wow was an extraordinary person, a French Jew who was a Catholic mystic. Her life was a testament to this union of the opposites of activism and quietism. She was a mystic through and through, and yet most of her life was spent in extreme political activism. She was a witness for peace in the Spanish Civil War, a Marxist who wrote for a workers' newspaper and was active in the Workers' Party. She worked in an automobile plant and as a grave picker so that she could be in solidarity with ordinary working people. Living in England during World War II, sick from overwork, she died of starvation because she refused to eat any more than the French, French resistant fighters who were living underground at the time. Weil thought of her activism in mystical terms. She spoke not of justice or power, but of attention which she defined as a point of eternity in the soul. If we can pay attention closely enough, she thought, we will come to know the transcendent, for it lies at the center of the human heart and mind. Wow. In terms of our story, if you practice paying attention thoroughly enough, you will see that cutting the cat in two is cutting the cat in one. But because we are all different, we are all already one. So passionate as your views may be, you do not want to take sides and engage in bitter disputes. Instead, you want to appreciate and understand and weep with the suffering of the world. You want to intervene in disputes, grabbing hold of the cat and saying to everyone, wake up, take a look. Let's take a look together. Let's go beyond our differences and see what we are really all about as human beings. How to do this in the midst of a particular situation is not always obvious. Maybe it takes a great master like Nanchuan to have the nerve to do it, but maybe not. Maybe we all have to learn to have that much nerve, getting up from the meditation cushion to become involved in our world of two-ness and manyness with the monk's spirit of oneness. Mm. I love this koan. <laughs> so I, I have two other um, essays on it. And one's by Dogen and, and another one, I can't remember who it's from. But do we want to uh, read one next week? Sure. Rather than go to another koan? Yeah, let's sit with this. I, I think the Dogen one would be good because um, 
you know, it's from a thousand years ago or whatever, 1300. So this feels very complete, but I, it'd be interesting to see the difference between modern day Fisher and his view approach. And I know it's just one view approach. I love reading different writers' perspectives, commentary, because it just becomes more full and rich. So yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> okay, I, I'm I'm uh, interested in doing that. And Emily, so, you're good with that, yeah? Hmm? Okay. So we, we won't, or do you want to read the, we have um, seven minutes. We could read the, the next koan. Oh, Kim? Or I'd, not. I'd really like to get some rest, but you guys are welcome to go on. Oh, no, no. We, we don't have to. Thank you. Okay. okay. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. See you soon. Good night. Good night.